Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes insensitive language, discussions of kidnapping, and the sexual assault of a child that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. If you suspect that a child has been abducted or is the victim of abuse, resources are available through the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Visit missingkids.com or call 1-800-843-5678. Ever since she was a young girl, Wanda Barzi held just one dream. She craved the unconditional love of a man who would protect her from life's dangers. She swore if she were ever lucky enough to meet such a man, she'd follow him blindly. Wanda found that hero in her second husband, a heroin addict turned preaching panhandler, Brian David Mitchell. Wanda believed Mitchell was a prophet on a mission from God. She promised to heed him without question, to do whatever necessary to help him carry out his divine purpose, even if that meant abetting the kidnapping, rape, and brainwashing of an innocent child. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we met off-kilter couple Wanda Barzi and Brian David Mitchell. The two first bonded over shared stories of neglect and abuse, but their futures together were cemented by a shared divine purpose. In Salt Lake City's Wasatch Mountains, they plotted the next step of their prophetic journey, the kidnapping of 14-year-old Elizabeth Ann Smart. This week, we'll follow Wanda Barzi as she assists her deranged husband in the abduction of Elizabeth. We'll chart how unhinged jealousy drove Wanda to punish the evil smart girl and threaten her with murder should she try to escape. We'll also break down how Wanda succumbed entirely to her husband's will and landed herself in prison because of it. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. 
Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It was a brisk October morning in 2001 48-year-old Brian David Mitchell slowed his breathing as he approached the Smart family home. The 6,600-square-foot monstrosity boasted affluence. This house and its surrounding Federal Heights neighborhood represented everything he and Wanda loathed about materialistic Mormon families. But the homeless preacher ignored his ire. He had more important worries today as he knocked on the front door. When it opened, a handsome mortgage broker in his mid-40s, Ed Smart, and his wife Lois welcomed Mitchell inside. Just then, the Smarts' daughters, 14-year-old Elizabeth and 9-year-old Mary Catherine, scurried by. Mitchell extended an eager good morning to the girls. They offered polite smirks and shuffled up to their shared bedroom. Mitchell clocked their course upstairs and down the hall. He'd met Lois, Mary Catherine, and Elizabeth earlier that week while panhandling. Lois had taken pity on him and offered him work at the house, which he enthusiastically accepted. But during their interaction, it was Elizabeth, the pretty one, who piqued his interest. To him, she would make the perfect virginal bride. Ed inadvertently interrupted Mitchell's stare by suggesting they patch some worn shingles on the leaky roof before clearing the yard of autumn leaves. When the day's work ended, Ed handed Mitchell $50. He asked the panhandler to return the next day, and Mitchell agreed. But it would be 15 months before he found himself inside the smart home again. Mitchell raced back to his makeshift camp in the Wasatch Hills. There, his wife Wanda desperately tried to follow as he frothed at the mouth, ranting about plans of abduction. He insisted they bring Elizabeth home to the woods. The beautiful girl would be his new bride and Wanda's true sister wife. Wanda was well-versed in her husband's prophecy. After all, she'd transcribed 27 pages of his dogmatic rambling in fine calligraphy. She knew God planned for Mitchell to marry seven young and comely virgin brides. But Wanda always assumed these sister wives would be raised as her new daughters. Having been estranged from her own children for the better part of a decade, Wanda was once thrilled at the prospect of a new family. But now that the day had arrived, she was wounded by Mitchell's desire for new spouses. She even wrote in her diary about it. In the end, however, she talked herself into accepting Mitchell's decree as an Abrahamic test. Mitchell always said a time would come when Wanda would have to make sacrifices to prove her devotion to God, just as Abraham had to when God demanded he kill his only son. 
And while Wanda had no desire to share her marital bed with another woman, she'd given up on thinking for herself some time ago. It was easier to endure God's test and obey her prophet husband. That was the deal she made in exchange for her husband's love and protection. Not that he was much of a protector. They lived in a jerry-rigged teepee in the wild, urinated in buckets, and begged for scraps of food. But Wanda made every effort to keep up her end of the bargain because she couldn't bear to be on her own again. While it might be hard to understand why Wanda would continue to follow Mitchell, it's important to remember her past. She was sexually abused by her father and routinely beaten by her first husband. By the time she met her second husband, her fears of being used, hurt, abused, or abandoned guided her every move. Mitchell was Wanda's safety, and she clung to him no matter what. Before we continue with Wanda's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. According to her article, Terror, Love, and Brainwashing, social psychologist and cult expert Dr. Alexandra Stain said, People run to a safe haven when they're afraid. If the brainwasher has been successful, the recruit, now having had fear instilled by the brainwasher, runs to the only safe haven available, the brainwasher himself. This creates a trauma bond that is difficult to break so long as the person remains isolated from alternate safe havens. The person goes into a freeze mode and is unable to think clearly. This explains why perfectly intelligent people can find themselves unable to rationally view a brainwasher. The lack of alternate information and true havens undermine a follower's cognitive processes on matters regarding the brainwasher. Wanda Barzee didn't seem to have a will of her own anymore. Mitchell's prophetic delusions became Wanda's safe haven, her reality. So when he insisted she help him kidnap Elizabeth Smart, Wanda complied. It's unclear why they waited so long to put their plan in motion, but about a year and a half after he worked for the Smarts, on June 5, 2002, 49-year-old Mitchell was ready to do the deed. He left 56-year-old Wanda to prepare the camp while he retrieved his new bride. It took hours to make it down the mountain, but once he found himself outside the Smarts' home, it didn't take long for him to discover a way in. Earlier that evening, Lois Smart had burned dinner. To clear the smoke, she opened a narrow window off the patio, but she neglected to close it before going to bed. The cracked window presented an open invitation to Mitchell. He used his pocket knife to cut the screen and slipped into the house. Once inside, he tread carefully so as not to wake the sleeping smarts. He kept thinking, if God wanted him to take the girl, he would allow it. With the exception of the light creaks of the floorboards under his feet, the house remained silent. He crept upstairs. In the darkness, he slithered down the hall undetected. Slowly, he turned the door handle to the child's room, the heat of adrenaline coursing through his veins. Though the room was dim, his eyes landed on her body. He inched over and for a moment hovered above Elizabeth, who slept soundly next to her little sister. 
Mitchell almost hated to wake the child. Still, he placed the steel blade against her neck. She woke startled. Before she could make a sound, Mitchell leaned in and whispered for the girl to stay silent and get out of bed, or he'd kill her and her whole family. Suddenly trapped in a nightmare, Elizabeth kept quiet to stay alive. The kidnapper pushed her toward the door, and she knew better than to fight back for fear he'd hurt the little sister she left sleeping in her bed. Mitchell moved his hostage down the stairs, and when he noticed a lineup of the family's shoes, he demanded Elizabeth grab a pair. Then he pushed her out into the frigid night air. Mitchell guided his hostage into the foothills behind the home as her family slept. The night was wet and cold. If a car passed or Mitchell heard something suspicious, he threw the girl into the brush and lay on top of her, knife to her throat. They climbed for hours until they finally reached an open grove of old oak trees. Mitchell pointed and said that his wife was up there. Then he yelled, Hepzibah! Wanda appeared and called back, Emmanuel? Wanda sized up the child. She pulled the girl into her, but this was no hug. Instead, it was a dominant grip, a threat that demanded the hostage's obedience or else. Satisfied she'd communicated who was boss, Wanda jerked the girl into the tent. She pushed her to the wash bin and barked at her to take off her clothes or she'd have Emmanuel rip them off. Elizabeth tried to run, but Mitchell intercepted her at the tent's entrance. He grabbed her and said if she let out so much as a whimper, he'd duct tape her mouth shut. Then he threw her onto the ground. She begged him to leave her be. She screamed that she was just a child, but it made no difference. Mitchell advanced. Elizabeth blurted out that she hadn't even had her period yet. This gave Mitchell pause, but when he shot an inquisitive look at Wanda to ask if it was wise to proceed, she nodded that it was. The first night of her captivity, Mitchell raped 14-year-old Elizabeth, and Wanda Barzee watched it happen, doing nothing to stop it. Up next, Wanda and Mitchell make Elizabeth their slave. The internet. What would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loey, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? 
follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. On June 5th, 2002, 49-year-old Brian David Mitchell broke into 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart's room and abducted her from her childhood bed. When he returned to his base camp with the girl, his 56-year-old wife, Wanda Barzee, coldly welcomed her as Mitchell's second wife. Wanda made no effort to comfort her hostage. She forced the girl to sleep on the hard dirt with moldy old blankets. She ignored the girl's bruises and cuts. Even when Mitchell wrapped an industry-grade steel cable around the girl's ankle to keep her from escaping, Wanda just grinned. Elizabeth tugged at the wire. She ripped at the steel cord until her fingers bled, but there was no hope. It was strong, bolted to a tree. Even when Elizabeth's fitful attempts to free herself gave way to great sobs, Wanda ignored her. The morning after the abduction, Wanda finally offered comfort. She said it was the girl's wedding day, which meant it was her time to cry. So she'd best get it out, but know that she wouldn't be allowed to go on crying forever. When the tears dried, Mitchell said Elizabeth was Wanda's handmaiden, the second wife. Wanda was mother and Elizabeth was slave. Then he disrobed the girl and asked her to follow closely as he and Wanda played Adam and Eve. Wanda stood compliant while Mitchell began his anatomy class. He pointed to the first wife's private parts and explained what he intended to do to them, and to Elizabeth's parts, too. When he saw Elizabeth had closed her eyes in fear or disgust, he erupted in anger. He raged, "'You're self-righteous and weak, no better than a homeless prostitute.'" Then Mitchell said, The Bible teaches that before one can rise above sin, one has to descend beneath it. Hepzibah and I will show you the low things of the world, pornography, booze, and drugs. Then you can ascend with us. Wanda backed him completely, buying into Mitchell's delusions once again. She said God demanded they all get in the gutter before rising to show their holy worth. At every turn, Wanda proved herself Mitchell's willing accomplice, reinforcing her commitment to his invented faith. She even stood there and watched again when, after the biology lesson, Mitchell raped Elizabeth for the second time in 24 hours. For the next several months, the days repeated themselves as if on loop. According to her autobiography, My Story, Mitchell raped Elizabeth almost every single day, and Wanda never intervened or tried to help. Not once. Having been brainwashed by her husband, she'd given into his system of belief. Even though Wanda was a mother, even though Wanda herself had suffered sexual abuse, she had no sympathy for Elizabeth. Perhaps because she was no longer Wanda, she was Hepzibah, and Hepzibah's duty was to Emmanuel. Therefore, it wasn't her place to interject or condemn the rape of the child. Her husband's delusions were her own. She didn't see a problem. 
According to the article Shared Psychotic Disorder by psychiatric researchers Faraz al-Saif and Yasir al-Khalili, shared psychotic disorder is an unusual mental disorder characterized by sharing a delusion among two or more people in a close relationship. The inducer, who has a psychotic disorder with delusions, influences the induced with a specific belief. The majority of cases were among married or common law couples with poor interaction with society. The induced can undergo influence under frightening conditions in the absence of social comparison, and the conviction to certain ideas will eventually prevail as the only solution to maintain a mutual relationship. The only thing Wanda really wanted was to maintain her relationship with Mitchell. She couldn't face the thought of having another husband walk away. Still, she grew upset over his attention toward their young hostage. Try as she might, she couldn't contain her mounting jealousy. By September of 2002, 56-year-old Wanda began lashing out. She fell into fits of screaming, calling Mitchell lustful and berating him for obeying every carnal impulse. But Mitchell could usually calm Wanda with little shows of repentance. When Wanda got upset, Mitchell begged her for a blessing only she could perform. This always softened her mood. She would take Mitchell's hands and, together, they would pray. During these blessings, Mitchell reminded Wanda he was the chosen prophet, but that he still needed her. He would say that even Moses had the help and guidance of his family, his older brother, Aaron. Mitchell needed the guidance and understanding of his first wife, and she believed him. In these moments, she re-upped, choosing to stay strong for her prophet husband. Usually, after these rows, Mitchell felt newly energized. To make good, he headed into town and refused to return until he could bring back food. One night, Mitchell returned to camp, thrilled to share the booty he'd scored. He snuck into the tent and quietly opened boxes of fast food, allowing the aroma to waft and wake the wives. Wanda and Elizabeth ransacked through the bags of stolen snacks, over the moon that her man actually provided for her, Wanda uncorked a bottle of wine and raised a toast. Mitchell beamed. He told the wives that Christ's true disciples recognized him as their prophet and handed him money, food, whatever he said he needed. In this case, that even included a bucket of fried chicken. Mitchell poured himself a hefty glass of wine. He ripped a biscuit into three pieces and recited the prayer for the sacrament. Once he'd gulped his booze down, he passed it to Wanda. She partook and gave the glass to Elizabeth. At first, the hostage refused the alcohol, but Mitchell insisted she drink it. Wanda, too, urged her sister wife to chug it down. When Elizabeth refused again, Mitchell threw a fit. He marched over to Elizabeth and said if she didn't drink it all, right then and there, she wouldn't get any food. But she was starving. She needed to eat. And though she had never touched alcohol before, she took a small sip. But Mitchell insisted she drink more. He pinned her down and forced the wine down her throat. He filled another glass and repeated the torture. 
After Elizabeth swallowed every last drop, Mitchell tossed her a bucket of fried chicken. She hadn't eaten in close to two weeks. Binging on biscuits and oily meat, Elizabeth thought she might throw up, but she couldn't stop herself. She was ravenous. Meanwhile, Wanda and Mitchell devoured their food, too. All the while, they laughed at Elizabeth. When she finally stopped eating, Mitchell made her wash everything down with more booze. The captors noticed she might be sick, so they tossed a metal bowl in her direction. But Elizabeth was too drunk to aim. She threw up violently, then passed out. The fact that she was unconscious was no deterrent for Mitchell. Again, he raped her. The next morning, Elizabeth woke disoriented. Her hair was crusted with vomit and her spirit was broken. If only she could send some signal home. Down in Salt Lake City proper, a search was underway, but to no avail. It had been months since Elizabeth's abduction and most of her family had given up hope. The one person who believed Elizabeth was still out there was her little sister, 10-year-old Mary Catherine. Mary Catherine had actually been awake when Elizabeth was taken. She'd pretended to be asleep because she was scared of the strange man in their room. She told her family she thought she remembered the kidnapper from some work he'd done on the house. She said it had to be the preacher from the street, Emmanuel. But when Mitchell worked for the smarts, he was clean-shaven with short hair. He passed himself off as a legitimate preacher, and the composite drawings the police had worked up were based on that visual. Had the police considered Emmanuel at all, they'd be looking for the wrong man. Meanwhile, up at the mountain camp, Wanda continued Elizabeth's religious education. She recited their doctrine, the book of Emmanuel David Isaiah, out loud for the girl to absorb. When she ran out of religious text, she read her journal aloud. Every second Wanda kept Elizabeth engaged was a second she didn't have to watch her husband prey on a lesser wife. But the longer they lived with Elizabeth, the more Wanda saw her as competition. Shackled to the trees, the child was never out of sight. She even slept between Wanda and her man. Wanda needed space, a change of scenery. So the next time Mitchell announced he was heading into the city for provisions, Wanda insisted she and Elizabeth join him. Mitchell eventually caved on one condition. The wives had to wear veils. Wanda stitched veils of thick cotton onto canvas headdresses. The head covers shrouded anything above the eyebrows, and the veils hid everything below the eyes. When they wore them, both Wanda and Elizabeth were unrecognizable. Pleased with the costumes, they hiked down to town. But at the base of the mountain, Mitchell stopped to remind his hostage that he had no problem killing her. He'd kill her whole family if she gave him reason. And Wanda confirmed, he'll do it and you won't be able to stop him. He is Emmanuel. Mitchell led the girls through town in search of food and drink. He caught wind of a party. Wanda had no interest, but Mitchell put his foot down. There would be free food and free booze, and they couldn't afford to pass that up. 
By morning, Mitchell was so wasted he couldn't make it back up to camp, so Wanda decided they would buy time at the library. It was a good hideout, too, until the trio was approached by a casually dressed man. As he drew close, he pulled out a badge. The man was a homicide detective and had a few questions. Wanda's eyes darted to Mitchell, but he stayed cool. The officer said he'd received several phone calls suggesting the veiled girl could be a child reported as missing. He asked Elizabeth to remove her veil so he could see her face. At that moment, Wanda felt Elizabeth light up with hope. Her own breath, however, grew tight with panic. She clamped her nails down on Elizabeth's leg and dug into her thigh. Mitchell was sober enough to think on his feet. He claimed that Elizabeth was his daughter. He told the officer that only her family could see her face, as she was pure and needed to be protected from the sin in men's eyes. All the while, Elizabeth stared at her potential rescuer, wanting so badly to rip off her veil and reveal her identity. But she was too scared Mitchell and Wanda would go after her family, so she remained still and silent. And eventually, Mitchell convinced the officer to continue on his way. It was too close a call. On the way back to base camp, Mitchell plotted a move. It was too dangerous to stay near Salt Lake, and with winter on the horizon, it would be too cold to stay on the mountain. They had to move somewhere warm and sunny. Suddenly, he knew where to take the girl. San Diego, California. Up next, Wanda and Mitchell cross state lines with their young hostage. Now back to the story. Fourteen-year-old Elizabeth Smart was taken at knife point from her childhood home in Salt Lake City. Her kidnapper, Brian David Mitchell, brought her to a camp in the woods where he and his wife, Wanda Barzee, raped, beat, starved, and humiliated the child to the extreme. To Elizabeth, Wanda was more of a monster than Mitchell. Wanda knew the depth of the girl's suffering but never lifted a finger to help. Elizabeth wondered how another woman, a mother even, could stand by and let this abuse happen. As winter approached, Mitchell decided it was time to leave Utah. They loaded onto a bus and rode 800 miles to a campsite in San Diego County. But this move was by no means a fresh start. By the time the trio arrived, Wanda was sick of Mitchell's neglect. He never looked at her the way he gazed at Elizabeth. Entirely insecure, Wanda demanded some changes. She felt jilted and needed to remind her husband that the girl was only just the second wife. But Mitchell never took Wanda's concerns seriously. He let her rage simmer, constantly boiling under the surface. Every day, Mitchell went out in search of food and booze, but every day he returned to camp empty-handed. Wanda and Elizabeth were starving to death. Finally, in late December, Mitchell came back with good news. He told Wanda he'd been invited for a home-cooked meal by someone he met while preaching on a street corner. He boasted of chicken, mashed potatoes, green beans, and cake, but he'd brought none of it back for his wives. 
Wanda flew into a rage. She asked Mitchell why he thought so little of her. She laid into him for shoving his face full of food, but coming back with nothing but a story about it. She screamed she'd been eating like a mouse. How could he bring back nothing? Mitchell reminded Wanda who she was speaking to. He warned her to be careful, for he was the true prophet. But she couldn't stop. Weeks and weeks of pent-up rage had been sharpened by hunger and exhaustion. She kept on screaming until finally he fled from the camp. Mitchell stayed away all day and night, and he didn't come back the next morning. Or the next. Losing him was always Wanda's worst fear, and now he truly was gone. Mentally, she beat herself up for causing his disappearance. If she could get a do-over, she'd never have yelled at him in the first place. At least a week went by before he came back. At first, she was elated to see him. But then he told her where he'd been. Jail. He was arrested for drunkenly wandering the street. He expected Wanda's sympathy, but she was all out. She hated him for getting meals in jail while she had to forage tree nuts. She railed on him for getting to sleep in a real bed and take showers while she and the girl were left for dead. Wanda had enough. For days, she'd worried that something had happened to him. Instead, he was just relaxing in jail, living the sweet life. Irate, she reached for Mitchell's serrated knife and pressed it against her own neck. Death would be better than one more minute with him. But Mitchell was nonplussed. She doubled down. She was going to do it, going to kill herself right then and there. Still, Mitchell offered no discernible reaction. Wanda stormed off through the brush. She was gone for at least a full day, and when she returned, she was different. Fire filled Wanda's eyes. Slowly, she moved to grab the book of Emmanuel David Isaiah. With her hand on their scripture, her eyes went dead. Then she methodically ripped out every scribbled page. She let the sheets of calligraphy blow away in the wind as she tore, shredded, and destroyed. At first, Mitchell just laughed. He didn't need the written word. The doctrine was locked in his mind. But when Wanda's outburst came to an end, she explained she'd been with Satan's hosts all night. Mitchell's ears perked up. Now she was strong and knew what her next course had to be. She had to leave San Diego. As if rehearsed, Elizabeth chimed in with support. She said it was time to hitchhike home. Surprisingly, Mitchell agreed. The trio hitchhiked back to Utah, clad in old street clothes and cheap wigs. They weren't recognized or even questioned. By March 12, 2003, they were only about 20 miles from home, but their hitchhiking luck ran out. They couldn't find a ride for the last leg. They'd have to take a bus instead. Worried that someone might recognize Elizabeth, Mitchell made her wear a gray-haired wig. The bus was packed. Forced to stand, Wanda surveyed the other passengers. She knew she and her crew stood out. They were in too close a proximity to maintain anonymity. The other passengers were clean, well-dressed. 
They were in dingy rags. Then Wanda noticed a man staring at Elizabeth. Her heart raced. She nudged Mitchell. When he made contact with the man, the guy asked, Who are you? Mitchell ignored the stranger, but the man followed up with, Where are you headed? Again, Mitchell kept his head down, but then the guy said, Why is she wearing a gray wig? Mitchell curtly responded that it was a religious practice and pulled the stop cord. He and Wanda quickly edged Elizabeth off the bus. When they were in the clear, Mitchell grabbed her. Shaking her, he said, Once I get you back to camp, you will never leave. I will not put myself in danger again. I am too important to the world. Just then, police sirens blipped. As the captor berated his hostage on the street, a cop car pulled up beside them. Wanda cursed and pulled Elizabeth along the sidewalk, but it was too late. An officer approached. The trio walked fast, heads down, but then another police car arrived and another one. Mitchell ignored them as they called out, "'Sir, we need to talk to you. Please stop. We need to see your ID.' Finally, the officers pulled Elizabeth from Wanda's grip. One kindly asked, "'What's your name?' The officer's eyes assured Elizabeth she was safe. She opened her mouth and three words trickled out, I am Elizabeth. The cops pulled Elizabeth into a rescue car and brought her back to the station where she was reunited with her father. Since she'd been taken nine months earlier, the police had undergone a wild manhunt. Finally, they had their kidnappers. Finally, Elizabeth was home. Criminal reports were filed on March 18, 2003, in Utah State Court, charging Wanda Barzee and her co-defendant, Brian David Mitchell, with two counts each of aggravated burglary, aggravated sexual assault, and one count of aggravated kidnapping. Before proceedings could begin, the courts had to decide if Wanda was mentally competent to stand trial. They needed to determine if her delusions would persist now that she'd been separated from Mitchell. But her mental health issues extended farther back than her interactions with her husband, nearly 20 years. The evaluation showed that even with space from Mitchell, Wanda was delusional. She was not fit to participate in court proceedings. Instead, she was ordered to spend time in treatment at a state facility. It was a long time coming. Wanda had struggled with untreated mental illness for most of her life. Even Wanda's children confirmed that her episodes had always been a taboo topic in their home. Her son Derek said that he and his siblings knew their mother was sick, but she had a lifetime of refusing help. While Wanda was in treatment, the legal proceedings marched forward. On March 5, 2008, she was formally charged with kidnapping and unlawful transportation of a minor. Wanda pled guilty in federal court. The following year, the Utah court sentenced Wanda to 15 years in federal prison. She served seven years in a federal penitentiary and was transferred to the state prison in early 2016. 
But in April of that year, the state board realized they miscalculated her sentencing terms. They credited her for her time in prison and the state hospital pre-conviction, but failed to credit her for her time in federal prison. At her parole hearing on June 12, 2018, Wanda's lawyer addressed the issue, contending that her federal sentence ran concurrently with her state sentence. Thus, the board issued a revised sentence set to end on September 19, 2018. Due to the miscalculation, Wanda was released six years earlier than anticipated. Her release was controversial, but ultimately upheld. As of this episode's release in 2021, Wanda is 75 years old. She's a registered sex offender and was last reported living near a Salt Lake City elementary school. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Wanda Barzi and the taking of Elizabeth Smart, amongst the many sources we used, we found the biography My Story by Elizabeth Smart and Chris Stewart extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by John Levinson, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson.